0: Hello, and welcome back to the Sne medic. So today we have episode three, where we'll be visiting another 20 cases from the medicine bank on PassMed. Okay, so let's begin. For case one, we have 19 year old Mel, whose girlfriend was recently diagnosed with meningococcal meningitis, who is worried that he may have also caught it. And the question is, what is the antibiotic prophylaxis you would give in this case? And your answer would be oral ciprofloxacin, And the NICE guidelines do state Cipro-Rifampicin or IM-ceftriaxone. However, in 2019, there was a Cochrane review which showed that a single dose of oral Cipro is effective and this has been approved by Public Health England. Okay, next for case two, we have 46-year-old male who presents with a productive cough, weight loss, shortness of breath and fatigue. This has been going on for six months when he got a pet parrot he's also a smoker 15 years 10 per day giving you a pack history of 7.5 and has an alcohol intake of 10 units per week his spirometry shows a reduced fvc normal fev1 and the fev1 to fvc ratio is over 80 percent giving you a restrictive pattern the question is what is your first line treatment for this case and your answer would be to give up the parrot so this is a case of extrinsic allergic alveolitis also known as hypersensitivity pneumonitis and your first line is trigger avoidance which is why you would just giving up the parrot so if this is persistent or serious case you could also offer corticosteroids and the investigations of this condition are chest x-ray to check for upper mid-zone fibrosis, uh, bronchial alveolar lavage for lymphocytosis and bloods showing no eosinophilia. The reason why this happens um, is because of the inhaled organic particles from the parrot. Okay, next we have case three, 45-year-old Mel, who presents to the ED with nausea, sweating, and severe central crushing, chest pain radiating to the left arm. You do an ECG and find he has widespread ST depression and T wave inversion, indicating an N STEMI. You also run some bloods and find he has an HB of 75 grams per liter. The question is, how do you manage the anemia? And your answer would be, an immediate transfusion of packed red cells. This is because transfusion threshold in ACS is 80, as anemia can lead to worsening of ischemia in ACS. Okay, next we have case 4, 45-year-old female being treated for Hodgkin's lymphoma with ABVD, which is Adriamycin, bleomycin, vinblastin and Dacarbazine. She's been admitted for a fever of 38.9 and her bloods two days ago show a Hb of 10.1, normal platelet count, low white blood cell count, low neutrophils and low lymphocytes. You do a respiratory examination, which you find is normal, and you insert an IV cannula and take some bloods, including cultures. Your question is, what is your next step? And your answer would be to start immediate IV, piperacillin and tazacin treatment. So this is most likely a case of neutropenic sepsis, which by NICE guidelines you should query when a patient on chemotherapy has a fever above 38 and you should start immediate treatment with antibiotics even before you get the blood results back for the neutrophil count. Okay, so for case five, we have 27 year old female. She presents to the ED with a frontal headache, blurring of vision and light sensitivity. She's also vomited twice since onset. You do a clinical examination showing no sign of cranial nerve deficit. She has reactive pupils and a blood pressure of 134 over 84. The question is, what is another symptom alongside the ones you've just heard that would indicate the need for an urgent CT head? and your answer would be confusion and not opening eyes until spoken to. So your red flags here with a headache are vomiting more than once and a reduction in consciousness. Some other red flags would be a new neurological deficit and Valsalva, which is associated with coughing or sneezing or positional change, increasing the headache, which is related to a raised intracranial pressure. And progressive headache with a fever is also a red flag, indicating a CNS infection, such as meningitis. Okay, so next we have case six, which is a question asking us, what is the side effect least associated with levodopa? And your answer would be galacteria. So some known side effects of levodopa, which is a treatment for Parkinson's disease, are psychosis, on and off effect, postural hypertension, and of course, nausea and vomiting. Okay, so next we have k 7, which is also a question. So a patient comes in telling you that she has a strong family history of cancer. And the question is, what is the least likely type to be inherited? And here the answer is gastric cancer. So the other options of colorectal, breast, endometrial and ovarian cancer do have a genetic component with them. Um, so gastric cancer is your least likely to be inherited here. And whilst we're here, the most common causes of death from cancer in the UK are in descending order lung, colorectal, breast, prostate, pancreas, esophagus, stomach, bladder, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and ovarian cancer. Okay so next for case 8 we have 30 year old female who's had a left knee ligament reconstructive surgery for torn lateral collateral ligament she now has persistent weakness in her left leg and foot on physical examination you find weakness of dorsiflexion so lifting the foot up and eversion of the left foot. You also find an MRC power grade of 2 out of 5 and a small patch lesion of sensory loss over the first and second toes. The question is, what is your most likely diagnosis? And the answer here would be common perineal nerve palsy, where the most characteristic feature is foot drop. So your differential here would be L5 radiculopathy, but the reason why it's been ruled out is because one, eversion is usually spared and you have weakness on inversion, and also because the patient has had a recent knee surgery which, for which common perineal nerve palsy is more common. Okay, next we have Case 9, a 30-year-old male presenting with new confusion and drowsiness and has recently had the flu. You take some bloods and find that he is hyperglycemic and his urinary ketones are also high. The question is what is your initial management and your answer would be IV fluids for a diagnosis of DKA. So since this patient is 30 years old, you're most likely querying type 1 diabetes, so you would check this, and then um, you would also look to give IV insulin and potassium based on his bloods. Okay, so next we have case 10, a 77-year-old female who had a fall yesterday evening and is brought in by the ambulance to the ED in the morning. You run some UNEs and find that she has a raised potassium of 5.7, raised creatinine, raised urea at 9.8 and a markedly raised creatinine kinase at 14,550 international units. Your question is what is the most likely diagnosis and your answer here would be rhabdomyolysis. So what happens is that since she had a fall and couldn't get back up for such a long period of time, the muscle breakdown meant that myoglobin was released, which is toxic to the kidneys, leading to an AKI. So here the raised potassium and cretin kinase are hallmark features of rhabdomyolysis, and your management here would be to give IV fluids, possibly with sodium bicarbonate for urinary alkalinization Also in reality, you would check the social background of this patient. Is this an odd case where she was found on the floor with no help? Does she have family to look after her? How is her home? Does she have the right equipment there? Does she need a package of care? Does she have family who can step in to help her get back to how she mobilises? Um, does she need to go into a nursing home? These are all options to consider with the patient and her family before she is discharged. Okay, so next we have Case 11, a 60-year-old male with known lung cancer coming in for a review. He gives you a three-week history of reduced appetite, feeling sick, and general fatigue. You do a clinical examination and find that he is mildly hydrated. So then you order some bloods to find that he has a raised calcium, raised albumin, glucose at 6.7, a raised urea, and a creatinine within range. The question is, which of his existing medications could be contributing to this clinical scenario? And your answer here would be bendroflumothiazide. So your other options here are amlodipine, simvastatin, aspirin, and lisinopril. So here the thiazide is the cause of hypercalcemia and it's thought to be due to the inhibition of calcium-activated potassium channels. Okay, so next for case 12, we have 33-year-old male presenting with a severe sudden onset headache, vomiting, and neck stiffness. He has a past medical history of recurrent migraine, CKD stage 4, autosomal dominant PKD, and early onset hypertension. You run some OBS and bloods to find that he is currently stable, and you send him for an urgent CT head. The report comes back as the following, he has hyper attenuated areas surrounding the circle of willis and interpeduncular fossa, no obvious skull fracture or parenchymal hemorrhage, his ventricles are normal sized and there is no midline shift. So the question is what is your most likely diagnosis and your answer would be a subarachnoid hemorrhage. This is because aneurysms, berry aneurysms are closely associated with ADPKD and The circle of Willis is an anastomosis between the two internal carotid arteries and the two vertebral arteries. So you have weak points between them and in PKD the berry aneurysms are likely to rupture and cause the hyperattenuated area surrounding the circle of Willis and interpeduncular fossa as seen in this case. Okay, so here we have Case 13, a 55-year-old male on the ward who started fitting 5 minutes ago. He was admitted 5 days ago for an ACS and has past medical history of tonic-clonic epilepsy, well-controlled on sodium valproate. When you reach, he has a SAT of 99% on 100% oxygen and a heart rate of 96. His IV access is already in situ and the question is, what is your next line of management? The answer here would be IV lorazepam as per NICE guidelines for early status epilepticus management. So within 10 minutes if the patient does not stop fitting you can give a second dose of IV lorazepam however 10 minutes after that if he's still fitting you can move to second line treatment which is IV phenytoin sodium valproate levetiracetam or phenobarbital however If 30 minutes from onset the patient is still fitting, they need to be induced with general anaesthesia for rapid control of seizure activity, and for this you need an anaesthetist. So ideally, you should bleep the anaesthetist as soon as you can to be able to manage the patient within the guidelines and the timeframes as required. Okay, so for case 14, we have a 59-year-old female who's coming for a review of her type 2 diabetes diagnosed two years ago. She's currently on metformin 500 milligrams three times a day, on which she has no side effects and is concordant with the advice. She has no significant past medical history, and on the review, her blood show a HbA1c of 55 millimoles per mole and you consider to change her medication. The question is, what is the target HbA1c for this patient? And the answer here would be 48 millimoles per mole. So for those on a drug which is not associated with hypoglycemia, such as metformin, the target is 48 as the standard. However, the target rises to 53 if the patient is on more than one drug or they have a single medication associated with hypoglycemia. Okay, so next we have case 15, a 74-year-old male with a history of lung cancer presenting to the ED with progressive confusion. You take some bloods and find that he has a low sodium at 118. You admit and give him some hypertonic 3% saline and repeat bloods the next morning, showing that this has risen to 132. So it's almost within range, which is 135 to 145. And the question is, what is the most likely complication this patient is at risk of? The answer here would be central pontine demyelination, which is also known as CPM. So this is because of the fluid shift. So if you imagine you're trying to raise the sodium in this patient and water goes where sodium goes. So since the brain is a very sensitive tissue, water from here will enter the blood and the brain cells will have less water and essentially go on to die, leading on to CPM. This usually presents two days after the infusion and as a locked-in syndrome, so the patient may have difficulty speaking, swallowing, moving around, even a coma if it's serious, and it's usually reversible, but you want to prevent this by increasing sodium levels very slowly at four to six millimoles in a 24-hour period. The other way around, if a patient is hypernatremic and you're trying to reduce the sodium, if you do it very quickly, then water will shift. The water will go from the blood into the tissues. And since the brain is very sensitive, the complication here would be cerebral edema. Okay so for K16 we have a question and it asks which blood product is most likely to cause an iatrogenic septicemia with a gram positive organism? The answer here is platelets and also to add to this a gram negative microorganism would be red associated with red blood cells. Okay, so next we have case 17, a 65 year old man with known multiple myeloma, presenting with abdominal pain, polydipsia and confusion. You run some bloods and find that he has a raised calcium and a sodium of 145 on the upper limit of normal. The question is, what is your first line of management in this case? And your answer would be to give IV 0.9% saline as this is the first line management of hypercalcemia. So this should hopefully correct his dehydration And then you should also consider bisphosphonates because with his history of cancer, it's most likely that he will have hypercalcemia again and bisphosphonates are known to lower calcium and also to prevent the osteoclast resorption of bone. Okay, so next for case 18, we have a 45-year-old male who is obese and presents with fatigue. You run some bloods to check his full blood count, use and TFTs, which are within normal limits. However, his fasting plasma glucose is 6.2 millimoles per litre. And the question is, what is the most appropriate interpretation of this case? The answer would be pre-diabetes with impaired fast- fasting glycemia, since this is between 6.1 and 6.9. You would therefore manage lifestyle lifestyle factors such as diet and exercise, and also have at least a yearly follow-up on bloods to see how the patient is doing and manage as required. Okay, so next for case 19, we have a 33-year-old male who presents with a two-month history of weight loss, fatigue, and polydipsia. He has a past medical history of a thyroidectomy for Graves' disease with no significant family history and is currently on levothyroxine. So you run a capillary glucose measurement showing your glucose of 18.1 and also urinalysis giving you glucose and ketones in high amounts in his, in his urine. His blood pressure is 134 over 86 and the question is what is the most likely diagnosis? Here the answer would be late autoimmune diabetes of adulthood and, and here although they have the antibodies against the islet cells they have a slower progression of autoimmune cell failure, which is why they present later than type 1 diabetics and earlier than type 2. Also, in in contrast to type 1 diabetics, they don't usually need insulin in early stages of treatment. So another investigation that could help you with this diagnosis is testing for glutamic acid decarboxylase, which is GAD autoantibodies, and also check for other autoimmune diseases. And also just to note here, levothyroxine is not associated with inducing diabetes. However, if a patient has diabetes and then starts on thyroxine, their doses of antibiotic drugs, including insulin, may need to be increased. And this is because in hyperthyroidism, you have increased growth hormone and cortisol secretion, which are anti-insulin. Okay, so now we have the final case of the day, which is case 20, where we have a 58-year-old male presenting with acute left-sided weakness of the face, arm, and lower limb. This was a sudden onset from two hours ago, and he has a past medical history of type 2 diabetes for which he takes metformin. On examination, you find a heart rate of 80, BP of 160 over 80, SATSA 98% on air, respirate of 18, temperature of 36.5, and a blood glucose of 6.5. You find that his pulse is regular, heart sounds are normal, chest is clear and abdomen soft and tender. So then you do a neuro examination and find reduced power, 2 out of 5 in left upper limb, 3 out of 5 in left lower limb and maintained 5 out of 5 power in both right upper and lower limb. His sensation is also intact throughout. So you send him for an urgent CT head and they say that he has no intracranial hemorrhage, So then you send for a CT angio who tell you he has an inclusion of the right proximal MCA, middle cerebral artery. The question is, what is your definitive management of this patient? And your answer would be thrombolysis and thrombectomy as per NICE guidelines for the management of an acute ischemic stroke who presents in a 4.5 hour window. So that brings us to the end for today. And I hope this has helped. Thank you for listening. Bye.